0: Our Lord, as we come into this text and strive to understand it and to grow in its light, it will affect each of us a bit differently. There are those here that are laboring in their own strength to secure their own salvation by good works, by being better than others around them. I pray that you would bring conviction and change of heart and transformation are those perhaps who come before this text and though they have trusted Christ the Savior are seeking to grow and be sanctified by their own self-devised rules. And I pray that there would be a warning here. I pray for those who have come to freedom in Christ and are trusting in His work alone and are walking in that freedom. I pray that we would be convinced in our souls of the sufficiency of Christ, and that we would be warned not to pull away from the path on which you have placed us and from the freedom that is in Jesus. By your Spirit, teach each one of us what we need to know, and may we together as a congregation gather around this text and grow in grace. We pray as well for the home gatherings that follow and pray that as we work out the application of this text, that we would be faithful to understand its meaning, to see how it applies to our lives, and to consider how we might move forward together in obedience to the text of Scripture here in Galatians 5 and in the entire Bible. We pray that you would be magnified in this time together in the Word. Through Christ we pray, amen. What comes to mind when I say the word freedom? You may think in terms of liberty from responsibility. Summer break from school, now that's freedom. Or you may think of a vacation from work, that's freedom. Leaving the responsibilities behind. Or it might be sending the kids to grandma and grandpas, that's real freedom. Or maybe it's sending the grandkids back to mom and dad, that's freedom. Freedom. Or maybe freedom brings to mind American civil liberties, freedom to assemble, freedom of speech, freedom to travel where we want and to associate with those that we desire, freedom to live and work where we choose, all of this without governmental interference and many other types of freedoms that we enjoy in this land. Do you know, for many in our world, freedom is defined in terms of the liberty to do whatever I want to do. Freedom is liberty from the authority and the expectations of others. The liberty of moral self-determination. Get out of my way. Stuff your rules and expectations. I will do what I choose to do. That's freedom for many. Well, such desires, as natural as they may be, obviously need to be curbed just for the protection of our society. And so we have a government that establishes laws. You have freedoms, but only so far. We cannot allow you to harm others as you exercise the desires of your heart. And so there's laws and there's law enforcement, there's courts and judges and there's prisons. To limit human liberties so we do not harm others. But the limitations of civil law are not often sufficient to satisfy the conscience. Or to curb freedoms that we come to recognize do enslave us. If we haven't had experience with it, we know that others are enslaved by some of these freedoms. And so many turn to religious systems. They add layers of rules and rituals intended to render us acceptable to God and to satisfy the conscience that we're doing something to avoid these slaveries of the soul that come when we exercise our freedoms. Now most religious people would find what I'm going to say next shocking. I think I'm right to say most. I've not taken a survey of the world, of course, but I think it's very clear to see in the way that world religions work, they would find this shocking. But the New Testament identifies law-keeping, religious law-keeping, as spiritual slavery. It actually alienates people from God that would be stunning to many religious people. They're doing an extra thing. There's the laws of the land that provide protection for others. But I'm going beyond that and I'm adding this whole other layer of rules and rituals. Certainly God is pleased with me. The New Testament consistently says that is bondage. A bondage from which Christ has delivered us. The New Testament reveals the good news that Jesus Christ purchased freedom for His people, freedom from sin, but also purchased our freedom from religious rule-keeping and ritual observance. Now I don't mean to say that all rule-keeping in every way is wrong, or that a ritual is wrong in and of itself, but as a means of qualifying before God, Christ has delivered us from such systems. In fact, the passage that we have read earlier here just a few moments ago in Galatians chapter 5 calls us to stand firm in this freedom. It teaches us that submitting to the bondage of religious rule-keeping counters the liberation Christ's saving grace achieves for His people. As we look at the first six verses of this passage that we have read, We notice, first of all, the call to stand in the freedom of Christ, refusing to submit to the slavery of works-based religion. We need to take this to heart and respond to this imperative that comes out of these first six verses. Let's work over them briefly together. Verse 1 starts, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in that freedom. This is why Christ has died. He redeems His people from the penalty of sin, bearing the punishment of their sin on the cross. And Jesus frees His people from their bondage to sin by the gift of His grace. Their bondage to sin now. So if we receive this gift by faith, what else should we do but stand strong in that freedom? To stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given. As verse 1 continues, we're not, in the negative side of it, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he mean by that? Well, it's all of what we've learned in Galatians, and it is a repetitive book. And so we've heard this again and again as he's turned this theme over. But you remember Paul preached the good news to these people. They responded in faith. They trusted that Jesus Christ had died in their place to pay the cost of their sin, And to liberate them from their bondage to sin. They had come to trust in that. And they had been baptized by the Spirit of God and indwelt by God's Spirit, regenerated. But after he left, what happened? False teachers came in among them and began to say, Well, Paul got you going a little bit in the right direction, but he's really naive. He doesn't understand how a Christian is to ultimately walk with God and and you people, particularly you Gentiles. You need to recognize that you must submit to the Mosaic law in order to qualify as God's people. There was an attack on Paul's teaching. As we've noted this graphic in the past, there is a promise of God to Abraham that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in His sacrifice, which means that the law, the time under the Mosaic law for God's people, is now obsolete. It has been fulfilled in the work that Christ has accomplished. And so, if the Galatians submit to this system of laws, the Mosaic law, they would submit to an obsolete system and that would mean that they would be pursuing law keeping as a means of qualifying themselves before God in a sense then they're kind of on their own at issue now was the hardest and in one sense the final frontier of their submission to the law with in the context of these false teachers, and that was to receive circumcision. That the Gentile men of these congregations in Galatia would be circumcised and so identify with the Mosaic Covenant and Israel, the people of God, as the teachers were pressing them. The false teachers claimed that this was necessary if they were going to walk with God in faithfulness. What does Paul say here in verse 1? Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. In the context of the book, what he is saying is you have Jesus. Thinking on this graphic, you have Christ. You have the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. You have been freed. Don't revert to the spiritual slavery of a system of religious rules and regulations. Don't go back there, because embracing that, you will be embracing what is now an empty system. What is now not only unnecessary, but will now be harmful, because it will steer around Christ. And that's a point he'll continue to bring up here, now in in verse 2. I, Paul, he says, look, or pay attention here, I, Paul, your friend your evangelist i say this to you earnestly verse 2 if you accept circumcision christ will be of no advantage to you that's the danger of it all and that's a danger for each one of us here today you have a choice as well you have a choice you can trust in keeping religious rules and regulations or You can trust in what Jesus Christ has done to save you. You have that choice to make. Indeed, every one of us is making that choice right now. I'm going to put my full faith and confidence in what Jesus has done, or I'm going to trust in what I can do. You say, well, isn't isn't it a bit of both? What does he say? Jesus will be of no advantage to you. If you put your trust and your confidence in the law, if you put your trust and confidence in religious ritual and rules keeping, he will be of no value to you. It's serious. Now, why can you not do both? Why doesn't it work that way? I, just to illustrate it, perhaps there's a father and he takes his three-year-old daughter in the car and they're driving along and it's a very rainy day and they get down into this low area of the road and it begins to rise with water and soon the car is stopped and they're completely swamped and the rushing of the water begins to take them away and he grabs his daughter and says hold on to my neck and he has the strength against this flowing stream of water to swim to safety If his daughter lets go of his neck and begins to swim on her own, her body is not strong enough and she'll be swept away. It's one or the other. She hangs on as he swims or she is lost. The analogy falls apart on a lot of levels, but it pictures that issue of either or. We can't have both, and if we are resting in the rules and regulations of our religious system for salvation, we have let go of Christ in this sense, according to this analogy. and we'll be swept away. Christ is of no advantage to you. That little girl lets go of her father's neck. Her father's swimming ability is meaningless. She's gone. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't submit to that yoke of slavery again. You'll be gone it'll be over and on that point he says let me stress this verse 3 I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law remember that you who are considering being circumcised don't forget this you must keep the whole law now I think the Galatians know this to submit to the law is to submit to all of its requirements and Paul has been saying throughout at least in subtle terms where he makes more explicit in other books you can't do that you won't submit to the whole law you won't you won't be able to perform it but those now there were there were sacrifices right if 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 you're in you're following the mosaic regulations and you do sin and you break the law of God there were sacrifices it would atone for your sin what is, what, how would Paul answer that objection? Well, yes, there were, but those sacrifices are now obsolete because the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, has been offered as the Lamb of God. So what you're doing is you're going into a system where the only way out is to completely keep all of the laws of God flawlessly because there's no more sacrifice for sin. Not under that system. Christ has fulfilled it. This means now that all who depend on law-keeping to please God are really trusting on their own works. They're like this little girl saying, I'm going to let go, and I'm going to strive to swim to the shore in my own strength. It isn't going to happen. The laws of God will come, and the flesh will rise, and disobedience will take place, and there will be no sacrifice for sin. In fact, as he says in verse 2, Jesus is useless to you. Verse 4, he says, you are indeed severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now verse 10 is going to prove that he does not mean this is actually the case with these individuals. But if you decide to be justified by rule keeping and by your religious system, you say, that's how I'm going to be righteous before God, you are separated from Christ. You have fallen away from the grace that can save you. There's an assumed if in Paul's argument here. But he says clearly that those who trust in their own works, who think obedience to religious rules and rituals will save them and give them favor with God, they are actually in that process cut off from God. Jesus won God's favor for sinners. Such that sinners who seek to earn God's favor on their own actually reject God's provision in the process. It's a serious consideration. It's a warning here to these believers and to us. Let's take the same father and the same daughter. But now she's 12 years older as a teenager. He takes her to a play. And they park the car and they go to the play and they're just about to go inside. He has purchased the tickets. They're very expensive, they're beyond her means to purchase. But he's purchased these tickets and he goes into, uh, they're standing outside. And she says, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't really feel comfortable just taking this ticket as a free gift from you, Dad. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to go stand out on the street and I'm going to do nice things to people until they give me enough money to purchase my ticket from you. And he says, what is wrong with you? they're going to close the doors. First of all, you could never do that. Nobody's going to give you anything. But even if they give you anything, you'll never earn enough money in the short time that we have to enter into these doors and go to this play. I I understand, but I've got to do this. So I feel good about myself. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. What Paul is saying to them, do you know why he said to them, why are you so foolish? How can you be this ridiculous? I am stunned that you are so quickly moving away to another gospel which is no gospel at all. It is ridiculous. And it's almost infinitely more ridiculous for us to think that we can put together our works to please God. That in eternity he will say, wow, you've done a really good job. You've earned enough money to buy your own ticket into my presence. Paul says, ridiculous. Foolishness. You've been severed from Christ if you think this way. You have fallen from grace if you think this way. You are separated from your only answer, which is to trust the Father's grace to having purchased for you entrance into His presence. Here's where it is, verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It's not by what we earn, but it is through the Spirit of God. It's the work of God that has taken place in our life. The Holy Spirit baptizing us, indwelling us, giving us new life as we place our faith and trust in Christ's death and resurrection. It is by faith, by trust in Christ, As the path to righteous standing with God. And it points us to the hope of righteousness. Our hope is not in ourselves, not in our religious system. It's in looking forward to the grace that is out there that awaits us because of the work that Christ has done. So we eagerly wait for that hope of righteousness Our confidence that our final accounting before God will confirm us as his forgiven children. There's a righteousness we enjoy now, but there is a final righteousness in judgment which we will receive and be confirmed in as we prove to be the children of God by faith and by spirit transformation. He continues, verse 6, "...for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love." Do You see what he's saying there? It's not the religious ritual. It's faith working through love. The religious ritual of circumcision will get you nowhere. In fact, refusing circumcision will get you nowhere. What matters is faith in what Christ has done. And that faith liberates us to lead a life of love toward others. Love for others is the kind of freedom Christ's death secured for his people. Now more could be said than that, but not less. Love for others is the kind of freedom Christ's death secured for his people. That's the liberation that we have. So... Stand in the freedom of Christ. Refuse to submit to the slavery of works-based religion. He encourages these believers. Secondly, in verses 7-12, through he encourages them to discern the trouble that works-based teachers cause and consider their end. These people who are influencing you to go this way, against what I'm saying, let's talk about them. And we'll talk about them fairly briefly here. But he takes up their situation, verse 7, and says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The word hindered and running well both have a, a track background, it would seem. And the hindering is one who's cutting them off, who's coming in and causing them trouble. They've they have they've been running well. They've trusted the gospel. They have put their faith in Christ. But now other people have come in and cut them off. And now it's in question whether they'll finish the race well or not. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. What persuasion? This teaching, this solicitation to put yourself under the rules and categories of the law, this does not come from the one who called you. Who is that? That is God. It's not where you're getting this idea, verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of fermented dough placed in the new loaf of bread will permeate the whole. If you go this way, if you allow them to persuade you, it will be a step into full corruption as churches and as believers. Be Be cautioned. Verse 10, I have confidence though. Here he hits on the positive. I have confidence in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say I have confidence in you. But he says I do have confidence in the Lord about you. That you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. I don't think he's probably talking here about one particular teacher. But he's just saying generically whoever it is that's teaching you to go this way. I have confidence you're gonna resist him I have confidence that you will believe what I'm saying and those who are troubling you will bear the penalty by God's grace you're gonna do the right thing And this supports the idea that verse four is clearly theoretical when he says you have been severed from Christ you have fallen from grace he's not talking about them in a settled state but he's talking about anyone who seeks justification this way he's talking here about believers who have trusted the gospel and he has confidence in the Lord will continue to persevere they'll continue to trust Christ alone I have that confidence in the Lord's doing but verse 11 if I brothers still if if I brothers still preach circumcision Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What's also been removed is the context. We don't really know what he's talking about here. We don't know what the issue is. And you'd say, well, if anybody's not preaching circumcision, it's Paul. But somebody was saying he was. Whether they're looking to his pre-conversion days, which is probably most likely, or whatever it would be, On some level, people were saying he was preaching circumcision. There was confusion about his message. And he said, let me give you one proof. I'm being persecuted. Now the Greek world looked at circumcision and said, weird. Those people are strange. But it's an ancient rite. And so they gave it some level of tolerance. If you thus identified with Israel... Even though people saw you as strange and odd, they at least said, okay, it's an ancient faith. We'll put up with it. But Paul says, there's nobody putting up with the offense of the cross. And I am being persecuted for it. I'm not not identifying myself as a participant in the old covenant. And the proof is that I'm getting all kinds of negative feedback for it. The offense of the cross would be removed, but in my case it's not been removed. So whatever the context there, that's his point. He concludes this point saying in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. One commentator refers to this as a snort of indignation. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Another is a sarcastic blast. I mean, it kind of comes out of nowhere. And it's really a bit uncomfortable for us in our kind of setting, our standards. By our standards, it's a bit shocking of a statement. But Paul, let me say it, he's mad. He's angered with these people. And I, I, I don't know, I don't have this experience to be angered in this particular way. But let's take our own setting and female circumcision mutilation you read about that for a little while and if you don't get angry you got something wrong with you that's kind of the spirit where paul is here and say for those people who would do that to women i wouldn't have a problem saying why don't you just take the knife to your own throat that's a bit of where paul's at here he's agitated He's angered. He is protecting this flock of God, and he is saying, why don't they just take the knife to themselves? It's, it's bold. It's a bit brash for us, but he's, he's, he's upset. If they're so all-fired anxious to use a blade on others, he wishes they'd turn the knife on themselves in a way that would, I guess, decommission them from their teaching ministry for a while. third section, verses 13 to 15. He says, stand then in the freedom of Christ by serving others in love. This is where it's headed. This is the whole point of it. For you, verse 13, were called to freedom, brothers. He returns to that theme. God called you to freedom, so stand in it, Verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's the caution. There is a danger indeed in all that is being said here today. There's a danger to permit our freedom in Christ to revert to our sense of freedom before we were saved. What is that? I want to do what I want to do. I want to exercise my freedoms. I want to go where I want to go and do what I want to do and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. The danger is that in Christ in the freedom we have is to come right back there as Christians using our freedom as a cover for the flesh. Many Christians, indeed, with unrefined view of the Bible, say something like this: "I'm free in Christ from the rules and rituals of religious systems, so I'm free to live however I choose." It's a dangerous thought, and Paul says, "Don't go there." This is what he says to someone who might think that way. This is what freedom in Christ is at its core. It is the freedom to serve the interests of others in love. You see freedom in Christ as this, get off my back, I'll do what I choose to do, I'll do what the Spirit seems to indicate that is right for me. You don't understand Christian freedom. The freedom is a liberty to give your life away in love toward others don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh but in contrast to that through love serve one another do you know how far short you fall of the love that god intends for us i'm sure none of us could say i do fully but i did you get that sense That inhibited sense of selfishness and self absorption that grips your heart. The me first, the please me, the give me, honor me mentality that constantly puts myself ahead of others. Do you know that in your soul? Do you see that in yourself? Freedom in Christ is not a freedom to do whatever I want. And to scoff at the expectations of others necessarily. Freedom in Christ is the liberty to love others as I should. It's a freedom from that self-centeredness. That's a liberty I need. That's a liberty I want. That's a liberty that I don't fully experience. That's a liberty every one of us should pray to experience of freedom in Christ to love others as I should. It's not an immature liberty that runs around showing off its unrestrained passions, but it's a liberty that says, in Christ I am complete, His work is all-sufficient, and through His Spirit I can pour out my life in the service of others without reservation and without self-protection. We need that kind of liberty. Verse 14, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Back to this point of love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The false teachers may well have stressed that only obedience to the law and circumcision would produce godly living. Paul says, no. We've been liberated from the authority of the old age in which we were held in chains of self-centeredness. This is how a mature child of God lives. As one who does not need the elementary rules and regulations of the law, freedom in Christ never results in selfish, sinful living. It results in transformed living. It results in my loving my neighbor as I love myself. But he gives an example where that's lacking. Verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Unbelievers find that other people stand in the way of what they want. And so they lash out in animalistic territorial wars. Because I want my freedom... To feed myself and my own selfish interests. And if you get in the way, there will be war. While believers responding to the dictates of the old realm that holds sway over the flesh can respond similarly. We have been liberated to pursue a much nobler and higher calling. <clears throat> and so in this passage, we find warning. It's a serious passage. It's filled with hope and there's grace laced through it all, but it warns several kinds of people. And depending on where each one of us is here today, it is certainly a warning toward the unregenerate libertarian, that person who just says, I wish everybody was out of the way, I just want to do what I want to do. You pursue self-centered pleasure wherever you can find it. In your mind, your only problem is, that people's, is people's expectations, the authority structures that are around you, the societal laws that restrict your freedom, the church that gets in your way, all these people in my way to do what I want to do. There's a serious warning here. And drawing from the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 8, that warning would be you need to recognize You're a slave to sin. That desire for freedom that just can't find its expression fully because of everybody that's in your way, that's bondage. If you aren't figuring that out, you're going to figure it out. There's going to be a day when you know I am in bondage to sin. This is a warning passage to such a person. Secondly, it's certainly a warning to the legalist. I will do good deeds and I will follow a code of moral conduct so as to qualify myself as God's child. That's like that little girl letting go of her father's neck and trying to swim on her own. It's like that teenage girl then trying to earn her way into the play by doing good deeds on the street. It's all ridiculous, it's all dangerous. But the warning I think that is here that is again laced through this passage is that what it is at heart is self-dependent pride and idolatry. You may not see yourself that way but that's what it really is. You're worshiping the wrong God and the proof is that you think that you can satisfy this God by your religious deeds. Which just indicates that you have a really, really small God. In fact, that God looks at you every day in the mirror when you get up. You're going about life in your own strength, your own way. Because you're simply in love with yourself. And you cover it all with religious deeds. Following the system. Being a good boy, a good girl. It's idolatry. There's a warning here. The God of Scripture has spoken, the exalted King of the universe who dwells in inapproachable glory. Our sin, let's recognize it, disgusts Him. There is only one answer for such a pure and righteous holy God, and that is judgment of sin. The good news is, That salvation is found not by our religious deeds, but by what Christ has done. That punishment has been paid. And I plead with you, do not prepare to enter God's presence on your own efforts and on your own merits. That would be so foolish and eternally destructive. We have been warned time and time again here against such an approach. It is true that faith works. Indeed it does. But the root is faith. The fruit is love. And only Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection power and only the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit can fully cleanse sinners from their sin. Don't trust this church. Don't trust your religious rules. Don't trust any other church to follow the rules to get you to God. Trust Christ alone. Another warning here comes to what we might call the shadow legalist. As I've said earlier in this series, it's really ridiculous to witness how quickly some Christians label other Christians as legalists. We should be really cautious of that because technically speaking, what we're saying is that somebody who is seeking to get into heaven by doing good deeds, by following a religious system that will qualify them before God. We should be cautious with throwing that word legalist around. As if any Christian who follows any discipline is a legalist. As if the grace of God does not teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. As if spiritual discernment and wisdom does not commend avoiding temptations. So often the ones accusing some of legalism are really just seeking an excuse for their own flesh. They just want to do what they want to do. And they don't like somebody getting in the way. But moving to the shadow legalists. Here we speak of true brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not formal legalists. That is, they know that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And they're by no means striving to earn their way to heaven by doing good deeds and and following their list. And yet, shadowing the legalists, they, to, they borrow a page from the legalist playbook. And the warning to them comes perhaps in the words of chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul is not particularly precise here, but he says, "...are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh?" It is right for us to pursue spiritual disciplines. It is right for us to have Christian practices. It is right for us to avoid temptation. But be careful about thinking that growth as a Christian is rooted in following a list of arbitrary rules you cannot prove from Scripture. There's a danger in that. It's not formal legalism, but it seeks sanctification in some sense on the same terms the end of that game is always spiritual stagnation always rule keeping lists to which i uh, that i obey they never fuel the spirit they just make us dry and dull or and the greater danger and warning here is that you get to glory you get that is to Uh, into eternity and you find that in fact you were a legalist you find that in fact you were seeking to please God by your own good deeds that's the greater danger for what we would perceive as the shadow legalist there's a warning here as well obviously for the liberated believer how do I know if I get freedom in Christ? How do I know if I really get it? How, how do I know if I'm walking in the freedom Jesus purchased for me and to which God calls me? What does this passage say? How does it instruct us there? It's asked this question, do I live a life of self-sacrificing love for others? Do I live a life of love that pours itself out for the good of those around me? Do I rejoice to serve the cause of Christ? by giving my life away, doing what best aids and profits, especially other believers. Do I love God's people? Do I rejoice to be with them? Am I willing to put their needs and interests ahead of my own on a day-by-day basis? Do I rejoice in this life, or am I irritated by all the people that are in the way? Do I look down my nose at those who don't keep my rules? Or do I pour myself out in love? Freedom in Christ transforms the way we do life. It transforms the way that we attend church. We do so not by ritual. It's not a submission to rules, although the Bible does command us to be here indeed. It's God's counsel to us. But we come out of love for God and we come out of love for others. And we participate in the life of the church to pour out our love to believers and in, in the service of the Lord. Freedom in Christ changes the home. The children, parents have rules. Now those rules can be pictured as a way to qualify as God's people and that we have to be very cautious with that. But a faithful liberated believer knows that those rules are necessary for what? To teach loving service of others. The Kids, you might get really sick of your parents getting in the way and saying, clean up your room. But if they're faithful parents, if they really know what they're doing, they're teaching you to clean up your room so that you're a mess fixer, not a mess creator in the lives of other people as you leave their home. They want you to learn how to live in love, and as you learn to live in love, there's fewer and fewer rules that are necessary. So that's where they're pointing you. For mates, it frees us from self-comparisons and petty competitiveness, and certainly from infidelity. It leads us to get up every day and to live for my wife, to live for my husband, to pour my life out in such a way that that person is made better. A genuine, hard-fought, patient love for one another, it changes families. Christ has set us free. It changes every relationship. It changes every area of our life when we live our life in love toward others. To give ourselves away for their good. To model the sacrifice of Christ as we relate to others. Not in competitiveness, not in self-centeredness, not in pride, but rather in humble love. Sometimes that humble love has to make hard calls. Sometimes it has to take positions that others around us don't appreciate but always it is pouring itself out in the freedom of Christ to build up those around us. Though He was rich, He became poor that we through His poverty might be rich. We walk in that example in this world, giving ourselves to aid and help and love others. And those Jesus liberates in this way have then the liberty to follow His example. That's our freedom. Stand firm in that freedom. Stand firm in a relationship with Christ that permits you to love others as He has loved you. That's our freedom. May we walk in it. Let's bow for prayer. We are time and again, Lord, awed, by the wisdom of your counsel. And we are in its light reminded time and again of our sin and our weakness, and thus of your grace, your tender mercies and steadfast, loyal love to us, for we are not the loving people that we should be. We do not experience the freedom in Christ that allows us to get our eyes off of ourselves. And to pour out our freedoms in Christ toward others. To love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to really and truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We need you. For those that have no such love, whether they're just serving their own flesh or they're, they've setting up around themselves a list of rules and regulations and in pride they pat themselves on the back whoever they are I pray God that you bring conviction today and that they would let go their heavy burden and embrace Christ crucified and risen for the freedom of the soul for those of us who tend to ape Legalism in our pursuit of sanctification. For those that are dry because they're weary of keeping their own self-imposed rules and they don't see how those rules really give them a sense of joy in your presence. Bring conviction. Bring change to all of us who struggle there on some level. Lord, for those of us who can say today that we stand firm in the freedom in Christ, may you confirm the wonder of grace and allow us to grow as your people. We will rejoice in your presence for all that you are pleased to do to show us the wonders of the liberation unto love that Christ demonstrated and that we have the privilege to live out in a radically countercultural, sin-killing, glory-awaiting way. Work this out in this church, in our lives, in our homes. Do not allow the conviction that we now sense to dissipate as we leave, but bring change into our lives, we pray, through our Savior. Amen. Would you stand with me and for just a few moments... Would you consider all those categories